It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. So oftentimes in life, we're just looking at the top. We're not looking at what's on the inside. We're not looking at the unseen. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little flows of audio we find floating all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. Well, take a look at this illustration here. This is the iceberg illusion, and you'll notice that what people see on the surface is really not what happens underneath. Icebergs, imposing and majestic, share only a tiny percentage of their beauty with us. The great majority of their structure, up to seven-eighths of their gargantuan heft, remains underwater. And so, with just its nose in the air, the iceberg has become one of the world's greatest metaphors for things with massive, weighty backstories. Today on ReSound, three beautiful dives below the surface that help us understand issues of race, the environment, and immigration. Stay with us. So today, I'm telling you, don't miss out because you're just seeing what's on the top. It's a lot of stuff underneath, but you got to dig deep. Race, as a filter through which to interpret the headlines, can be beneficial, polarizing, too late, too much, or too touchy, depending on who you talk to. But like our regal iceberg, the racism we witness today is only a tiny section of its history, which is long and painful. When producer John Bewin was in high school in the late 70s, he learned from his textbooks that people could be divided into three distinct races, mongoloid, caucasoid, and negroid. Decades later, he wondered when and how this now debunked theory of race took hold. To look at this question and other ideas about race, John started producing a multi-part series called Seeing White for his podcast, Seen on Radio. Here's an excerpt from the episode called How Race Was Made. The three races um, in the order usually presented, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, Caucasoid at the top, uh, is not a biological fact and only became science in the sense of anthropologists said that this is true in the 1940s. 
That's Nell Irvin Painter, historian, Princeton professor emerita, and author of The History of White People. Science now tells us that in the beginning of the human story, people evolved in Africa from one common ancestor a couple hundred thousand years ago. We're all kin and all African if you just go back far enough. Over time, some people walked out of Africa and spread across the world. The branches of the family that spent thousands of years in colder places without a lot of sun, they lost much of their melanin and turned a bunch of different shades depending on the conditions where they were. That's how we became a species ranging from the darkest brown to the lightest pink beige and everything in between. Shades of brown with an array of yellowish and reddish tinges. All of that explains why people look different. It does not explain the wildly inconsistent and ever-changing groupings that people have concocted over the last few centuries. It doesn't explain my high school textbook. So we believe we need to know how we got this thing called race, if we're going to understand racism. Suzanne Plissick is with the Racial Equity Institute. The team is based in Greensboro, North Carolina, but travels the country doing anti-racism workshops. I recorded Suzanne and her colleagues a few months ago in Charlotte. REI's courses are not diversity training. Their approach is not kumbaya, let's get along, let's tolerate one another. Instead, they drop a whole lot of knowledge, especially history, but also sociology, biology. We know, for example, since the Human Genome Project, that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings? 99 point what? Nine. 99.9. Genetically the same. There is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race. There is more genetic variation within groups that have come to be called races than there is across groups that have come to be called races. Statistically likelier that I am closer to you genetically. Suzanne, who is white, points at a black man. Than I am to you. And then a white woman. Anthropologists finally say, and it is way past due, that race is anthropological nonsense. Is that the same thing as saying it's not real? No. No, because it's real. It is powerfully real. It's politically and socially real. So we need to know how did we get it, and what we say is we constructed it. To tell the story of the construction of race, and therefore of whiteness, Let's go back to the beginnings of Western civilization. Why? Well, because of course it's Westerners who would come to call themselves white, but also because Westerners would become the inventors, eventually, of race as we know it. We go back to Greece because that's where we think of as our, as our cultural beginnings. And in ancient Greece, says Nell Painter, there was no notion of race. <laughs> people could look at other people and see some people were lighter and some people were darker. But what did that mean? What did that mean? 
Greeks, notably Herodotus, fifth uh, century BC, uh, Herodotus traveled. Uh, we don't know that he actually traveled to all the places that he talked about, but he did talk about what was then the known world, his known world. And uh, he did not use the word race, but he talked about how people live, uh, where people live, the climate, is the air humid or dry, uh, is the landscape hilly or flat, is there a lot of water around? How do the people live? Do they live on horseback? Uh, do they walk around? And how do they look? They could see differences in skin color. So, for instance, uh, Ethiopian comes from burnt skin. Actually, Herodotus thought that the Ethiopians were the handsomest people in the world, um, kind of as an aside. So if race didn't exist for the Greeks, does that mean they saw all humans as equal? Uh, no. For culture, um, the ancient Greeks naturally thought that their culture was the best and that they were the civilized people and other people were barbarians. The Ethiopians to the south, who happened to be darker, good-looking or not, they were barbarians. But so were the pasty people to the east. The Persians, for instance, were light-skinned, and they were too light-skinned for uh, upper-class Greeks who played their games in the nude and got suntanned. And they would laugh at Persians for spending too much time indoors. And the in indication of that was that the Persians were really light-skinned. They didn't go outside and get suntanned. They were unhealthy. The Greeks saw lesser humans in every direction. To the northwest, the Celts. That word, Celt, comes from the Greek name for the Celts, Keltoi, which meant roughly the strange barbarian people to the west. And to the northeast of Greece, the Scythians, a loosely defined term that seems to have applied to people we would now call Slavic, but also Asian. The Greeks decided all those non-Greeks were inferior, not because of the color of their skin or anything hereditary, but because of where and how they lived. Oh, and uh, yes, in the ancient world, there was a whole lot of slaving going on. Slavery is so much bigger. Slave trades are so much bigger than our idea of race. The Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the West African kingdoms, they all practiced forms of slavery. The Vikings, all that pillaging they were known for, one of the main things the Vikings pillaged was people. And people of every color got enslaved. Folks in Eastern Europe were hauled off into bondage so often and for so many centuries that the very word slave derived from their name. Yeah, Slav. But if all that slavery in the ancient world was not about race, because race hadn't been invented yet, well, who did invent it and when? Going into this, I did not expect an answer to that question in the form of one person's name and the year of the invention. But here's a scholar who says, yeah, I'll tell you who did it. So, yeah, my name is Ibram Kendi, and I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Florida. Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. Before we get to the guy Kendi blames for inventing race and racism, a little more context that he offers about the ancient world. Yes, he says, 
people have always had the tendency to see themselves as the very best sort of people, Aristotle built a human hierarchy based on climate theory, which claimed that the sort of temperate region of the Mediterranean uh, has produced the most superior peoples, while the extreme cold or extreme hot northern or southern climates sort of lead to these inferior peoples. But Kendi points out that not everybody thought that way, even back then. Just as you had these notions of human hierarchy in the pre-modern world, in the ancient uh, world, so too did you have individuals like Aristotle's uh, chief foe in Athens. Uh, He's talking about a philosopher named Alcadamus. Who challenged those notions. Aristotle said nature intended for some people to be enslaved by others. Alcadamus wrote that God has left all men free. Nature has made no man a slave. And likewise, Kendi says, Just like you had some uh, Christians uh, using Christianity to, to justify certain peoples as inferior, so too did you have St. Augustine and other early Christian fathers who, who challenged those notions and, and expressed uh, human equality. Throughout history, he says, there have always been thinkers who understood that humans are one. And there have always been people with the capacity to admire cultures and societies different from their own. Kendi points to a man named Ibn Battuta, a Moroccan born in 1304. Yeah, Ibn Battuta, who was basically is considered to be the 14th century's greatest world traveler. And so he traveled all the way over to, to Asia, uh, up and through Eastern Europe, into Middle East. He also traveled into Sub-Saharan Africa. And he, of course, wrote about his travels and described uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, specifically the Mali uh, Empire, uh, which was, so you had these three major sort of empires in pre-colonial West Africa, Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Some argue Mali was the most illustrious and the richest. And so he he visited Mali and, and spoke quite glowingly about Mali and how, for instance, that, you know, he traveled many places, but in Mali, you know, he felt safer than anywhere else. He also uh, spoke about sort of the civilization of the people and other things of that sort. And when he went back to to Morocco and, and wrote that, some of the armchair intellectuals thought he, he must be lying. Batuta's claims about the glories of Mali were shouted down as lies for a very practical reason. His Islamic Moroccan society was busy enslaving people from sub-Saharan Africa, as well as Slavs from Eastern Europe. And so to classify these people as not inferior would have been, uh, of course, uh, difficult for slave traders, just as if people didn't classify the Slavs as inferior, it would have been bad for business as well. About a century after Ibn Battuta wrote admiringly about West African kingdoms, a Portuguese man wrote a book. And here we get to Ibram Kendi's culprit. His name was Gomez de Zurara. As Kendi recounts, the king of Portugal had hired Zurara to write a biography of the king's uncle, Infante Enrique, better known as Prince Henry the Navigator. Who, of course, was the first major uh, slave trader to exclusively enslave and trade in, in African people from, of course, Portugal in, in the mid-1400s. Uh, Writing in 1453, Zarara chronicles and glorifies Prince Henry's historic voyage a decade before. 
It was the first time Europeans sailed to sub-Saharan Africa to seize captives directly, rather than buying sub-Saharan slaves from North African middlemen. In describing the resulting slave auction back in Portugal in 1444, Zurara lumped together the very different-looking captives, some lighter-skinned Tuareg people, others much darker. He claimed that Prince Henry's main motive was to bring them to Christianity. So Zarara portrayed slavery as an improvement over freedom in Africa, where he wrote, They lived like beasts. They had no understanding of good, but only knew how to live in bestial sloth. And, and so I basically uh, make the case that he was the first articulator of racist ideas. And in order for him to articulate racist ideas, he had to basically combine all of the different ethnic groups that Prince Henry was enslaving into one people and then describing that people as, as inferior. And so presumably then, he, though he did not necessarily speak as much about whiteness, he certainly created blackness. And uh, blackness, of course, cannot really operate without whiteness. And to Kendi, this is crucial. Zarara was not just some independent chronicler calling them as he saw them. As I said before, he was hired to write the book by the Portuguese king, Prince Henry's nephew. Zarara was also a member of the Military Order of Christ, which was like this para sort of military slash Christian organization similar to like the Knights of Templar, and who was the leader of the Military Order of Christ? Prince Henry. And when Prince Henry said something, you were a member, you did it, uh, including make, make him look good for, for slave trading. So it's, it's fair to say literally that slave traders commissioned the invention of this sort of codified racist idea of black people and implicitly then, on the other hand, of white people. Yes. Zarara's writings were widely circulated among the elite in Portugal. In the coming years, the Portuguese and their ideas about Africans led the way as the African slave trade expanded among countries like Spain, Holland, France, and England. And then by the 1500s, you had other ideologues expressing similar ideas about African people. So the concept of the beast becomes sort of the way in which, for instance, the first British slave traders described uh, African people. So, so when the British colonists came to the United States, what would become the United States, they were steeped in these ideas. Is that fair to say? Yes. And so I make the case and I sort of show the pervasiveness of racist ideas um, in England before uh, in the early 1600s to sort of show the environment that these colonists were, were brought up in and the racist ideas that were circulating and how not only did they bring over bags, they, they brought up with these racist ideas in their minds. By the late 1600s and into the 1700s, with the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment, scientists got busy sorting the natural world into categories like never before. And they did the same with people. This is Nell Painter again, author of The History of White People. During the Enlightenment, for uh, Carolus Linnaeus, Systema Naturae, it's 1758. And then Jan Friedrich Blumenbach in Göttingen, Germany, 
first publishing in the 1770s, by the 1780s, uh, and the 1790s, using the word Caucasian for white people. Linnaeus named four human races, Blumenbach five. That was just the beginning of an unending argument about how to do the impossible, how to separate humanity neatly into distinct groups. Much later, an American anthropologist would say, no, it's three races. The three in my high school textbook. Mm. And I remember, I think I remember even as a you know 16-year-old, 17-year-old, looking at that and thinking, and having questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, let's see, what... What about all the people who don't fit neatly into yes. these three yes. three groups? Yes, and this has always been a problem for racial science. That was an excerpt of How Race Was Made, produced by John Bewin for his podcast Seen on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. For a link to the entire Seeing White series, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, a deep dive into the EPA. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Recently, news seems to be flying at us at blistering speed, which is why for this episode, Third Coast curated stories that go deeper, plunging beneath the surface of social issues. Today, the tip of the iceberg. This metaphor can go only so far when the real icebergs and glaciers are melting, calving, and disappearing into the rising oceans at alarming rates. And to make matters worse, the EPA, the governmental agency tasked with protecting them, is itself in danger. On the media host, Brooke Gladstone pointed her investigator's eye and rapier wit to the EPA and did some digging. She wanted to find out how the environment went from being of universal concern to Republicans and Democrats to a bitterly divisive political football. Before we play this excerpt, what you need to know is that in the 1960s and early 70s, you could smell and see pollution in the United States. People died from smog, and oil spills clogged the waterways. In fact, Cleveland's Cuyahoga River actually caught fire. It was so filled with waste. 
President Nixon, besieged by protests over the Vietnam War, civil rights, and women's rights, saw the environment as a common cause everyone could get behind. And they did. When Nixon, yes Nixon, founded the EPA in 1970 and put Bill Ruckelshaus, a Republican prosecutor from Indiana, in charge. Ruckelshaus went right to work filing charges against both cities and big corporations to get them to comply with new regulations. He later played other roles in the Nixon administration before ultimately being fired by the president during the Watergate scandal in 1973. Brooke Gladstone picks up the story of the EPA from there. The 70s saw the rise of deregulation from airlines to stock markets to telephone companies, and not just under Republicans, Jimmy Carter, too. But Richard Andrews, professor emeritus of environmental policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, said it was Reagan who expanded that philosophy to environmental protections. Rather than trying to reform or tweak the environmental regulations that had come into play in the 70s, He tried to just reverse them, and it didn't go well. Reagan nominated Anne Gorsuch Burford as the EPA administrator. Incidentally, her son Neil is Trump's Supreme Court nominee. Anne Gorsuch and most of Reagan's other EPA appointees had no experience in environmental regulation, and so the EPA was blasted for supporting polluters over people and mishandling the Superfund program created to clean up toxic waste. Critics charge Superfund hasn't been used enough because of political delays or because EPA has been too easy on the industries which polluted. Political delays? Example, the Stringfellow Acid Pits, where not a penny of the federal Superfund has been spent yet. More than 20 EPA officials resigned or were fired from the agency. Public outcry led to congressional investigations, and the head of the Superfund account went to prison. Well, the public was riled up. William Ruckelshaus, founding administrator of the EPA. They were mad. They were angry. They believed that this agency created to protect the environment and their health was being undercut, so they demanded change. Once again, in the midst of public outcry, Ruckelshaus was asked to run the EPA by a president backed into a corner. When he returned to Washington, he was free to repair the tattered agency any way he saw fit. It was the one promise I asked the president to make, and that was to let me find the people who could take the place of those who were uh, being replaced. The president looked at me in, in the Oval Office and said, Go ahead. Obviously, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so so these were people that had been there before that I'd kept in touch with, and we straightened it out in a, in a big hurry. You mean you didn't want to drain the swamp of all those uh, experienced bureaucrats? We didn't think of it as a swamp. It was a wetland, which is to be preserved. <laughs> you wrote in the New York Times this week— that as you were awaiting Senate confirmation for becoming the EPA chief the second time, you had conversations with the execs at chemical companies that stunned you. They were worried about the EPA having been gutted. Yes, they really were. This group of chemical manufacturers, which were heavily regulated by EPA, asked to see me, and I assumed they were going to complain about overregulation. Because that's what happened the first time you were at the EPA. Yeah, everybody was complaining then. They came in and said just the opposite, that they had no credibility with the public. 
that the agency charged with regulating their conduct had essentially been eliminated as far as the public was concerned, and that I needed to get in there and start regulating and start showing that the government was serious about protecting public health and the environment. What were they afraid was going to happen if the public couldn't trust them or the EPA? Uh, then the public will turn on them and take away their license to operate. Uh, they were finding that they were, had so little support from the public, even from their own employees, that the government needed to step in and say, we're going to protect your health, we're going to keep you safe. They requested that. You need an agency there to ensure that the rules are followed, that the rules are clear and, and fair and protect the public. Clean and fair rules, but not too many. In the mid-'80s, a Democratic Congress overcorrected for Reagan's cuts by writing environmental laws that directed the EPA to issue a certain number of new requirements a year. And this, according to Richard Andrews, is when the EPA's reputation began to sour. We'd already regulated the big companies, and so now we were doing things like regulating drinking water and underground storage tanks and things that hit much more heavily on uh, small businesses and local governments. But still, this issue remained bipartisan for a time. The first President Bush made maybe the last serious effort to really define himself as a Republican environmentalist president. I don't have to tell those of you who are hunters and fishermen how important the wetlands are as a habitat for fish and ducks and geese and other waterfowl. But they also help control flooding. In 1990, he spearheaded the Clean Air Act amendments that gave us cap-and-trade for sulfur and nitrogen, really one of the most effective innovations in environmental policy we've seen since the 1970s. But in 1992, he was then beaten by Clinton running with Al Gore, who was clearly identified as an environmentalist. Saving the Earth's environment must and will become the central organizing principle of the post-Cold War world. Over these several events, the Republican Party generally decided that no matter how much they tried to burnish their environmental credentials, there would always be some Democratic opponent who would push for more government action than they were comfortable with as a party. And so they began to dig in deeper with the anti-environment constituencies and so forth. While the Democrats, in turn, said, okay, this is our winning issue, and the environmental groups can be our ground-level support troops, sort of like teachers. And so my own assessment is I think it's unfortunate that environment has sort of been captured by this increasingly polarized partisan dynamic as a big government issue. My first day in office, I'm also going to order a review of every single regulation issued over the last 10 years. All needless job-killing regulations will be canceled. Do you have a sense of deja vu? Well, it's hard not to. People in EPA are afraid. They're afraid they're going to lose their jobs, that they're going to lose their ability to function as they believe they should. And I would guess that their fear is justified. What do you think the EPA's number one priority should be now? Well, I think they should do their job. I think they should do a better job of communicating with the public as to what they're doing and why they're relevant to their lives. 
I mean, EPA doesn't have a whole lot of constituencies. Uh, there's not people who say my, my favorite agency in the government is the Environmental Protection Agency. Quite the contrary. I also think that there are some legitimate criticisms of EPA. Sometimes regulators and inspectors get arrogant. Uh, they push people around unnecessarily. They need to be firm and they need to be fair. But at the same time, they need to recognize that a lot of the people they're dealing with are their customers. They've got to be better at convincing people that they really are on their side. I think also EPA can make some better choices in terms of what they really focus on. It would be a tragedy for this country to drop out of paying attention and taking a leadership role in dealing with climate change. If EPA were to go away, the ability to deal with climate change by our government would be severely compromised. That was an excerpt of How the Environment Got Political, reported by Brooke Gladstone for On the Media from WNYC Studios. For a link to On the Media's entire episode about the EPA, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. It's easy to get overwhelmed when you read the headlines. There is a lot going on all the time. Which is why Third Coast curated three stories that go deeper to give you a broader understanding of important issues, hidden below the tip of the iceberg. For the last story of the hour, we're turning the torch on the concept of sanctuary, which by its very definition means a place of refuge or safety. There's been a lot of talk in the news about sanctuary schools, sanctuary cities, and of course, houses of worship that act as sanctuary to protect refugees and immigrants. But if we move beyond the tip of this iceberg, we find a more complex narrative of just how the sanctuary movement began. Here are 99% Invisibles, Delaney Hall and Roman Mars. In the 1980s, the United States experienced a refugee crisis. Thousands of Central Americans were fleeing brutal civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala. They were traveling north through Mexico and crossing the border into the U.S. In response to this mass migration, a network of churches across the country declared themselves sanctuaries. In defiance of federal policy, some of these churches helped smuggle Central Americans across the border and offered shelter to people who were threatened with deportation. And most of the churches did this publicly, without trying to hide what they were doing. By the mid-1980s, the sanctuary movement had become very visible and also very controversial. Here's a report that aired on NBC around that time. In the eyes of the congregation at St. Mary's Church, they are heroes. In the eyes of the federal government, they are criminals who smuggle aliens into this country illegally. The government didn't like that churches were openly defying immigration law and harboring undocumented immigrants. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, now known as Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, contended that many of these people didn't have legitimate asylum claims. The agency's stance was that many of these migrants had come to the U.S. to find jobs, not because they feared political persecution. A refugee from El Salvador. The administration contends he and others like him have come here for economic reasons. But the young man listed other reasons for fleeing his homeland. 
killings, Represión. repression, Miseria. misery, and hunger. The U.S. government found itself in a tough situation. They could allow the churches to continue openly disregarding the law, or they could launch an investigation into the movement and risk public disapproval by targeting sympathetic church workers. In 1984, the government launched an investigation into the sanctuary movement. They called it Operation Sojourner, a biblical term for traveler or wanderer. The goal was to collect enough evidence to indict the leaders of the movement and to stop churches from sheltering migrants. The investigation would eventually raise big questions about the freedom of religion and the right of churches to declare themselves protected spaces, free from government intrusion. This is an issue that's playing out in the news again today, as churches and other institutions anticipate large-scale deportations under President Donald Trump. On day one, I'm going to begin swiftly removing criminal, illegal immigrants from this country. Donald Trump's Demonstrators outside the immigration office in Colorado, supporting a mother of four from Mexico, Jeanette Vizguera. Currently, in 2017, many churches are starting to shelter undocumented immigrants once again. We're going to look back at what happened in the 1980s, the last time a big confrontation happened between the federal government and sanctuary churches. In 1984, shortly after the government launched its investigation, a couple of new volunteers approached members of the sanctuary movement, asking if they could get involved. Their names were Jesus Cruz and Solomon Graham. I thought, they don't fit the usual sanctuary volunteer profile, right? Uh, They look a little tough and a little too experienced on the border for the average volunteer we're getting. This is Reverend John Fife. Back in the 1980s, he was the pastor at Southside Presbyterian Church in Tucson, Arizona. He helped found the sanctuary movement. And Fife said that even though Cruz and Graham seemed a little different somehow, it was his policy to welcome all who said they wanted to help. Uh, They had crucifixes around their necks. And uh, they presented themselves as folks who'd heard about the sanctuary movement and wanted to be a part of it. So we welcomed them and included them in. Cruz and Graham began attending meetings and helping transport Central American migrants through the sanctuary network. They would drive folks from Tucson to Phoenix uh, or from Phoenix to Albuquerque or from Phoenix to L.A. Uh, So they would drive legs on the Underground Railroad. But as it would turn out, Cruz and Graham were not ordinary volunteers. They were undercover informants. The government had hired them to infiltrate the movement and gather evidence. Cruz and Graham were both former smugglers. They'd worked on the border as guides, bringing people into the country illegally. Then they'd been caught by immigration. And uh, they'd reached an agreement that if they would infiltrate us and inform uh, the government about what we were doing, that that they would not only pay them, but, uh, but drop the charges against them. The INS had decided to investigate the sanctuary movement using the same tactics they might use against any criminal smuggling enterprise. The agency wasn't swayed by the religious motivations of people like Reverend Fife. Here's Alan Nelson, the then commissioner of INS, speaking with ABC in 1985. If you and I are meeting in a church building to plan to rob a bank and open with a prayer and close with a prayer, I don't think many people would say this is a church service that should be protected. 
They have the right to think what they want. Anybody does. That doesn't exclude them from obeying the laws of the United States. This is Ruth Ann Myers. She became the INS District Director for Arizona in 1984. She didn't oversee the investigation into the sanctuary movement, but she was briefed on it when she arrived at the Phoenix office. Yeah, I was totally surprised. In my experience, I had no knowledge before of a church breaking the law and harboring illegal aliens, smuggling and harboring. Myers says the case was pretty straightforward. These people were breaking the law, the law of the United States. I'm in favor of, excuse me, legal immigration, but not illegal immigration. I think we have the right to have our laws and to enforce them and decide who comes into this country and who doesn't. Cruz and Graham, along with a couple of other government agents, spent 10 months undercover, gathering evidence against the sanctuary workers. Their methods would eventually come under public scrutiny because they hadn't just infiltrated the sanctuary movement. They were also secretly recording meetings, conversations, and in some cases, church services. Today's date is October 1st, 1984. Time is about 8 p.m. Where God will deliver the needy when they cry for help. These undercover methods struck some people as offensive and overreaching. Here's Anthony Lewis, then a professor at Harvard Law School, speaking to ABC News in 1985. Well, it's the methods that that bother me. I think most of us Americans would believe that in America you are entitled to a sense of uh, privacy when you go into a church, maybe privacy of a particular kind, you and your God. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you. The state was infiltrating and secretly surveilling churches in a country where the separation of church and state is a deeply held ideal. We reached out to two agents who were involved with the case and both declined to speak to us. The people overseeing the investigation at INS thought these methods were justified. They saw the movement as more political than religious. Yes, there were many that thought it was under the guise of the church meaning the sanctuary workers were using religion as a cover to push a political agenda and undermine immigration laws. And it's true that some sanctuary volunteers were vocally critical of the American policy in Central America. Some expressed support for the left-wing movements developing there. In fact, there was a divide within the movement itself about whether their work should be motivated primarily by humanitarian concerns or political ones. That debate got to the point where we decided to have a gathering and and try to resolve it. But two weeks before that meeting was supposed to happen, the government indicted 16 of the sanctuary workers in Tucson, including Reverend Five. On January 14, 1985, federal agents swept down, arresting 63 Guatemalan and Salvadoran refugees across the United States and handing out indictments to 16 leaders of the sanctuary movement. That morning, Reverend Fife was sleeping when he heard someone banging on his front door. And so I got up and I went to the door and there were two Border Patrol agents there. (laughs) His immediate concern was for the refugees that were staying at Southside Presbyterian Church, right across the street from his house. The only thought that occurred to me was, I got all these vulnerable people over in the church. I need to keep these guys occupied. (laughs) So I invited him in. 
made coffee, stalled every way I could. He read through the entire indictment the officers had handed him, trying to buy some time. My charges were pretty clear, and, and they were pretty typical of everyone. They were a number of counts of conspiracy to violate federal law, uh, harboring illegal aliens, transporting illegal aliens, and aiding and abetting illegal aliens. And everyone had different counts under each of those categories. Eventually, the Border Patrol agents went on their way, and Reverend Fife and the other leaders of the sanctuary movement were left with a daunting situation. They faced an impending high-profile trial in which they'd be facing off with the federal government. And the charges against them were serious. If convicted, they could spend years in prison. They got to work assembling a team of lawyers to defend them. So there's, there's two bases, as I see it, for sanctuary. It's very simple, really. This is James Brosnahan, one of the defense lawyers. The first is religion. And uh, many churches, many religions, have as a distinct imperative that you are to assist people who are on the road and who are fleeing some form of violence, oppression. It's the teaching of Jesus. The defense thought there was an argument to be made, that the sanctuary workers were just acting in accordance with their faith. Not only that, the lawyers believed the religious rights of the sanctuary workers had been violated by the government agents who'd infiltrated their churches and made secret recordings. And that's intimidation of people who are pursuing their Bible studies in a church. The second part of the defense's argument had to do with asylum law. The law provides that when a person shows up at the border, and they are fleeing certain specific kinds of oppression or violence, they have a right to come in. And when that is true, and that can be established in an immigration court, that person is entitled to stay in the United States. That's asylum. As the defense team researched the laws, they started to believe that their clients hadn't really violated the law at all. They thought the U.S. government had. I did research uh, both how the United States government was handling asylum applications from people from Central America, and I also researched international law. This is A. Bates Butler III, another lawyer for the Sanctuary Volunteers. And I was appalled by what I discovered about how the United States government was systematically, it seemed, denying asylum applications from Central America. This was all happening in the context of a major shift in U.S. refugee policy. Before 1980, the U.S. approach to taking in refugees had been expressly political. It gave preference to refugees fleeing communist countries and countries in the Middle East. In 1980, President Carter signed the Refugee Act into law. The law was supposed to create a fairer system by adopting a more humanitarian, non-ideological definition of a refugee. It used the criteria developed by the United Nations, which identified a refugee as anyone with a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion. Even though these new criteria were in place when Reagan came into office, the lawyers for the sanctuary workers believed the government was not following its own law. They thought INS was turning away large numbers of El Salvadorans and Guatemalans who should have qualified as political refugees. Butler had been skeptical of the sanctuary movement when he first learned about it, but his research had changed his mind. And so I moved from uh, 
a position of, well, this is all fine and dandy and this is the religious thing to do, but it's illegal. I moved from that position to it's lawful to help these people and it's the United States government that, that is violating the law. The defendants and their supporters marched to the federal building in Phoenix for the first round of arraignments this morning. The charges, transporting aliens illegally, harboring them, and conspiracy. Inside the courtroom, the defendants pleaded not guilty. They were released without bail. Their trials were set for April 2nd. The sanctuary people say those trials will be a major test of religious freedoms in this country. This afternoon in Tucson, more arraignments in what sanctuary... After months of preparation, the defense team was feeling confident. They thought they had sympathetic clients, a good amount of public support, and compelling legal arguments. Here's Reverend Fife again. Our position was, oh, we welcome the opportunity to make that case in court. And we think we're going to win in a slam dunk. But then, very early on, the defense team faced a major setback. The lead prosecutor for the government was a lawyer named Donald Reno Jr. And one of his first moves was to file a series of motions asking the federal judge who was hearing the case to limit the arguments the defense could make. And then the federal judge who was hearing our case ruled that we couldn't say anything in our defense during our trial about five subjects, uh, United States refugee law, international refugee law, conditions in El Salvador, conditions in Guatemala, or our religious faith. <laughs> so that wiped out our entire legal uh, position. I mean, what, what was left? Nothing was left. And the way my attorney explained it was, well, federal judges in criminal prosecutions have enormous power to exclude evidence that they believe is not relevant to the charges that are being filed against the defendant. The judge had effectively reduced the case to its most basic level. Had the sanctuary workers engaged in a conspiracy to smuggle and harbor undocumented people? Yes or no? There was to be no discussion about context, history, or motivations. One of the defendants was a man named Jim Corbett. Along with Reverend Fife, he'd helped to found the sanctuary movement. Corbett died in 2001, but in an archival interview, he described the situation that the defense team found itself in. He said it was as if a man was driving late at night in freezing weather. His car breaks down, so he goes to a nearby house. And breaks in, and then is discovered and brought to trial. And the judge rules out any evidence that would indicate that it was 40 below. His car had uh, gone bad. Uh, he had, had stopped, went to the only house in the area, and entered it. Without understanding the context, Jim thought there was no way the jury could understand why the sanctuary workers had decided to shelter Central Americans. Uh, now, in terms of the necessity defense, we're talking about something very similar with people fleeing torture and murder mm. in a very different context. But to rule out the ability to refer to that necessity um, simply makes a mockery of the law. Mm. The judge, named Earl Carroll, died in early February of 2017. 
We requested an interview with Prosecutor Donald Reno Jr., but he's still an active litigator for what's now known as Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The agency declined our request to speak with him. But he was featured in a news report from 1985, and he described the sanctuary movement as, quote, an alien smuggling conspiracy. The defendants induced, encouraged, smuggled, transported, and harbored illegal aliens. The government says that's not much different from drug smuggling. Over the next several months, the prosecution laid out its case against the sanctuary workers, relying heavily on testimony from their undercover informants. Reno characterized the sanctuary movement as a smuggling operation, pure and simple. The defense team tried to undermine those accounts in cross-examination and to sneak in details about context and motivation when they could. But in most ways, their hands were tied. And when it came time for the defense to present their case, they declined to put anyone on the stand. Sanctuary movement. Today, the defense rested without questioning a single witness. Jury deliberations could begin next week. It is alleged that the sanctuary The jury deliberated for more than 48 hours, spread over nine days. On May 1st, 1986, 16 months after the indictments and more than six months since the start of the trial, the jury filed into the courtroom to read the verdict. Of the 11 sanctuary workers who went to trial, three were acquitted of all charges. Eight were found guilty, including Reverend Fife, which hit Bates Butler, the lawyer, really hard. After the jury came in, I was so disgusted. with the system uh, that I had worked in for so long, I didn't want to be a part of it. And we were so upset that our government and our court system had cast aside our clients with their moral positions and that we felt like the government and the courts were bankrupt. The system was bankrupt. But the other defense lawyer, James Brosnahan, had known there were significant hurdles they needed to overcome. You know, juries are very good, but they come into the box with their own attitude. And the attitude is people just can't come over the border. If you're going to do that, you got to pay the price. Ruth Ann Myers of the INS thought the verdict was fair. The people that worked in the sanctuary movement did not present those people to immigration offices. They smuggled them into the U.S., They gave them, quote, sanctuary in their churches. They did not follow the law. Next came the sentencing by the judge. We really were worried that the judge was going to put him in prison. My attorney told me, take a toothbrush in your hip pocket when you go to sentencing, because they want you bad. (laughs) Uh, So I had made arrangements with the congregation and with my family and, and everything. Uh, expecting to go to prison. And, and much to our astonishment, he sentenced all of us who were convicted to five years probation. The judge gave them relatively lenient sentences, considering they'd been convicted of, in some cases, felonies. So we were relieved at that point. I think, I, I don't know what he thought, but I, I thought that if he gave these nice people a jail term, it would be awful. public opinion on that. And I think he had some, some sense that that might be true. 
Many of the sanctuary workers, including Reverend Fife, went back to their communities and continued their work in the sanctuary movement. Churches continued sheltering people. Volunteers continued helping people across the border. Many of the sanctuary volunteers had made clear in their closing arguments in the trial that they wouldn't stop doing the work. The government may have sentenced John Fife and seven other sanctuary activists, but it has hardly silenced them nor stopped them from a cross-country crusade. In fact, And at that point, did the government just back off? I mean, they must have known that you were continuing to do exactly what they'd just tried you for. They backed off us here in Tucson, but they tried one more trial. In New Mexico, the government charged a man and a woman who were part of the sanctuary movement for transporting undocumented immigrants. And the jury in that case found them not guilty. And at that point, we knew that the movement had grown to the point where juries would no longer convict sanctuary workers. Not long after the criminal trial had ended, a group of churches and refugee rights organizations filed a class action lawsuit against the government. They alleged, among other things, that the government had engaged in discriminatory treatment of asylum claims made by Guatemalans and Salvadorans. In 1990, the government settled the lawsuit. They agreed to uh, uh, give everyone who was here without documents from those countries temporary protected status, work permits. And they agreed to a whole series of reforms of the political asylum process. So we essentially uh, uh, began to wind down the sanctuary movement. But even though the churches were slowing their work, the whole idea of sanctuary was spreading. College campuses, cities, counties, even whole states began to declare themselves sanctuaries. And not just for refugees fleeing persecution, but for undocumented people more broadly. This accelerated through the 1980s and has continued up to today. But what exactly sanctuary means varies from place to place. Anything you want. Uh, that's, that's part of the problem. And each city is probably a little bit different. Once again, lawyer James Brosnahan. Usually the local authorities, police, uh, sheriffs, will not assist in the deportation of undocumented people. In some places, police aren't allowed to inquire about a person's immigration status or to give that information to the federal government. In other places, all residents are promised access to city services regardless of their immigration status. These policies can be set in law or they can just happen in practice. President Donald Trump talked a lot about sanctuary cities during his campaign. And he's pointed to murders committed by undocumented immigrants as evidence that sanctuary cities should not exist. He's threatened to pull federal funding from cities that identify as sanctuaries. And he's also promised to accelerate deportations. In response, churches are once again sheltering people. I think a lot of congregations across the nation are struggling with what will it mean to be faithful to the mandates of our faith underneath this administration. This is Allison Harrington. She's the current pastor of Southside Presbyterian in Tucson, the church where the sanctuary movement began in the 1980s. She and her congregation provided sanctuary to a couple of people who were threatened with deportation during the Obama administration. They're now having conversations about whether that work will expand in the next few years. I mean, I can't ignore the fact that my predecessor, John Fife, was indicted for doing the work that I'm doing right now and that he was looking at 10 years in prison. I try not to think about that, (laughs) Um, but you can't ignore that. 
Since 2011, churches have had some protected status as sanctuaries. In that year, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, under President Obama, issued a memo. It said that some sensitive locations require special consideration by immigration officers. The government has said we won't enter into those sensitive locations unless it's an extreme situation or we have higher levels of approval. And those sensitive locations are houses of worship, hospitals, and schools. But that practice isn't codified into law and could easily change. Recently, there have been reports of immigration agents targeting undocumented people in hospitals and schools. Churches might also be vulnerable. That's going to have to be worked out. Uh, through a number of, of institutional decisions as well as court decisions uh, well into the future. Uh, what's going to be the result five years from now? We'll see. No one knows. State Sanctuary Part 2 was produced by Delaney Hall for the podcast 99% Invisible. For a link to the first part of this series about churches, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, resound. All diamonds, no rough. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.